We're going to be reading our sermon text during the sermon, so at this time I want to call the kids down front for their children's sermon. Things are a little different this morning. I haven't read the Bible verses for our sermon yet. I'm going to read them during the sermon, but I want to explain some of these verses to you so that the rest of the sermon will make sense to you. One of the things we're going to learn is the great privilege we have as God's children. Do you know what a privilege is? I'm getting mixed responses here. A privilege is a right that is given to a certain person to do a special thing. For example, at school, sometimes you have special days like pajama day or hat day, right? These days are a privilege. You get to do something that other kids at other schools don't get to do. Our verses tell us about the special privilege God's children have of coming to God whenever we want because Jesus has opened the way for us. You remember last week we talked about that special room in Israel's tent church. And that room was called the most holy place. And the minister could only go into that, that room one time a year on a special holiday. And when he entered that room, he came with the blood of the lamb and he put this blood on the lid of the ark, that special golden box that was a picture of God's throne among his people. There's a picture of the ark right there on that window. Now, there was a list of things that the priest had to do in exactly the right way before he could go into that room. If he did anything wrong or if he accidentally forgot to do something, he could not go into that room. And if he did it anyway, he would die. His clothes had a long rope that went through the doorway so that if he did die, someone outside could pull him out of that room. Why would he die? Well, he would die because God is holy and he can only be worshipped by men who have their sins paid for by Jesus' blood. So there was a very thick curtain that served as the door to that special room, the most holy place. This curtain was a picture of Jesus' human body. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus' body was broken on the cross, he was opening the way for us to enter this special room. And do you know that at the very same time that Jesus died, that curtain split right down the middle from top to bottom. God threw open that door wide open for everyone who comes to him through Jesus. The old priests had the privilege of coming into God's presence once a year. No one else had that privilege, only them. But now we have that privilege of coming into God's presence anytime that we want. Now, what do you think when, when you have a hat day and one of your classmates doesn't wear a hat? We think, man, eh, he doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about hats. Maybe he thinks it's not cool or, or you know, maybe he just doesn't like wearing hats anyway. What would you think about a person who has the special privilege of coming to God's presence anytime they want, but never do it? Well, you'd think they don't care about being with God, right? What would you think about a person who says they love God and, and worship Him, but they almost never go to His house on Sunday to worship Him? Well, you'd think they're, either they're lying or they don't really care about the privilege of worshiping God. How could you love God and never want to spend any time with Him? So our verses warn us that some people have the very bad habit of skipping worship. Our verses warn us that skipping worship is dangerous. Ah, people say, ah, I, can, I can worship God at home or I can worship Him anywhere. Why do I have to come to church? 
But if they don't worship God in church where it's easy to worship Him, you can be sure they're not worshiping Him at home or anywhere else. It is a wonderful privilege to be able to come freely to God's house and worship Him because of Jesus' death for our sins. Our verses are going to tell us that a person who ignores this privilege doesn't really love God or believe in Jesus. And what I said will make more sense if you listen to the rest of the sermon. So I encourage you to do that. We're going to pray, and then you can return to your seats. <coughs> Excuse me. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to cover the whole of chapter 10. When I opened this series, I said that one of the most important things to understanding the epistle to the Hebrews was to keep moving. And so by breaking the book up into little bite-sized pieces, we run the risk of losing the train of thought. Some of you may even have thought to yourselves, boy, pastor keeps repeating himself. I said this before, I haven't repeated myself where the sermon texts haven't repeated themselves. But more importantly, the repetition is required in order to keep the epistle's train of thought before us at all times. Chapter 11, I think, will require a more detailed approach, so we will break that into smaller sections. But the nature of chapter 10 has just seemed to me, as I've studied it over the past couple weeks, that... It, uh, it seems to require a big picture approach. And so the way we'll proceed this morning is we'll take large sections of the text for each of our sermon points. Now chapter 10 is the close of a parenthesis that began in chapter 8. The structure is exactly like Paul's other epistles. He makes doctrinal statements and then he presses the doctrine home with practical applications. Paul had argued the superiority of Christ over all the institutions of the Old Testament in chapters 1 through 4. Then he brings this to bear practically on his readers with a warning against apostasy in chapters 5 and 6. And then chapter 7 closes out that section by looking back at Melchizedek and Abraham to show the reason that Christ is superior to all the institutions of the Old Testament. And that's because he was the archetype. They were merely patterned after him. Chapters 8 through 10 demonstrate what he's already argued. I said Paul has already said that Christ is superior to the institutions of the Old Testament because he's the original after which they were patterned. In chapters 8 through 10, he demonstrates what this means for the believer. Chapter 8 argues that Christ is priest of a better covenant because he's the mediator and he is unchangeable. Chapter 9 argues that Christ is priest of a better tabernacle. His tabernacle is the original, after which the earthly tabernacle was copied. His administration of the covenant is effective because it's based on his death. And chapter 10 argues that Christ is priest of a better sacrifice. So our outline this morning will be drawn directly from the text, powerful sacrifices, verses 1 to 10, uh, powerless sacrifices, 1 to 10, powerful sacrifice, 11 through 18, and perseverance, 19 through 39. So our first point, powerless sacrifices, and let's read verses 1 through 10. 
For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they can offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in, the, in the, those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, the most important thing for us to see here is that those animal sacrifices did not in actual fact, remove sin. We've actually pointed this out several times. I keep quoting question 14 of our catechism. God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. Paul's argument here is that Christ's sacrifice really and truly accomplished what the animal sacrifices of the old administration merely typified. That's why the sacrifices under the law had to be repeated continually year by year. If those sacrifices had actually removed sin, then they wouldn't have had to be repeated. Once a debt is paid, the debtor stops paying. And one of the interesting things that Paul notes here, and we have to assume that he knows what he's talking about, is that the sinner's sense of guilt before God was not removed by those animal sacrifices. Think about that. You know, when you apologize to someone, and they say they forgive you, but then later throw it back in your face, well, you know they didn't actually forgive you. The repeating nature of the Old Testament sacrifices was kind of like having your guilt thrown back in your face every day. Unless the sacrifices end, your guilt is not removed. Christ's death proves that we have remission because it ended sacrifice for sin. It did what sacrifice is supposed to do. Because you are a man, and not a lamb or a bull, you have to know that the guilt of your sin remains unatoned for by those animal sacrifices, right? Unless there is something back of these animal sacrifices to which God is looking. And that, of course, leads us to our second point, the powerful sacrifice. And so let's read verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands ministering daily, and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. The verses 11 to 18 tell us that Christ sacrifices the final sacrifice 
And this finality was spoken of by the prophets. And the finality is seen in the points of contrast given here between Aaron's priesthood and Christ's. So we have frequent offerings versus one offering. We have ineffectual offering versus an effectual offering. We have standing priests versus a seated priest. Standing priests are still working. A seated priest has finished his work. And then we have daily offering versus once forever. Now that's some repetition, isn't it? And the point of this repetition is to show the results of Christ's effective sacrifice. And these results are two-sided. There are results related to Christ's enemies and results related to Christ's church. Verses 13 to 14 show the results as related to Christ's enemies. His enemies are made his footstool, the verse says. For by one offering, he has perfected those who are being sanctified. All men that set themselves against Christ, either by directly opposing his kingdom or by substituting the work of their own hands in the place of his cross work, they will all be made his footstool. To be made a footstool implies deep corporate ruin as well as personal or individual destruction. The destruction of Christ's enemies is one of the glorious benefits of his sacrifice on the cross. It's promised to Christ. In Psalm 2, Psalm 110, countless other psalms, and in the parable in Matthew 21, verses 33 through 42, which ends by saying, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. Now, there's obviously no question that what is primarily spoken of here is the utter destruction of the Jewish nation. Their entire social and ecclesiastical fabric was cast to the ground. They cried out, His blood be upon us and and our children. And God took them at their word. And their history has been the history of God's vengeance. A blood stain that can't be washed out. It's followed them throughout the earth. But the scope of the warning is far wider. All who rise against the Lord and against His Christ of necessity will come under His avenging rod. All of Christ's enemies, who are enemies also of his redeemed church, are doomed. The results of Christ's sacrifice, we said, are two-sided. The other side of the equation can be seen in verses 15 through 18, where we have essentially the argument of Hebrews 8.8 and the citation of of, uh, Jeremiah 31, but now quoted for a different purpose. Remember I said earlier the chapters 8 through 11 were a, or 8 through 10 were a parenthesis. This is the other side. This is the other bookend. It's been one long argument to dissuade believers from apostasy. Previously, Paul had used Jeremiah's prophecy to prove a new and superior covenant. But here, Paul adduces the passage from Jeremiah in a more restricted sense to prove that the one offering of Christ renders all others unnecessary. Christ's offering renders all others unnecessary because it secures remission of sin by logical consequence. That precludes any further sacrifice. So this is the conclusion of a long, dissuasive warning against apostasy. And the precise point in which Paul's argument concludes is that which magnifies the priestly office of Christ. The power and the efficacy of all of his arguments from Christ's prophetic and kingly offices depend on the perfection of his sacrifice. Had he failed here, all was lost. But having received from the Father's hand the bitter cup 
And by his agonies on our behalf, he exhausted it. And the government of the universe and the salvation of his chosen and called church was placed beyond all doubt and peril when he cried out, it is finished. And that leads us to our third point, perseverance, and we will read verses 19 through 39. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. For recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise... For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, this final section of the chapter contains several practical exhortations based on Christ's priesthood. I want to focus specifically on one of these, which I believe is relevant to us and which will lead us into chapter 11. There's a sense in which most of these are kind of overlapping ideas. They're, you know, things that lead naturally to the next or different facets of the same things. All of the exhortations come from the effects of Christ's sacrifice. So, for instance, we're told that we can come with boldness because we have a new and living way into the Holy of Holies. Think about that. This is the greatness of the Gospel era. Whereas formerly, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies only once a year and not without blood. We have unfettered access to God's very presence 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And we don't have to fear being struck dead because we've inadvertently forgot one of the details of the rituals. Christ has torn the veil and opened the way for us. That veil was a type of Christ's body. By His broken body on the cross, we have access to God. And he demonstrated this by ripping the temple veil in two, right down the middle, forever throwing open the Holy of Holies to all who draw near to God through him. You, 
average Joe Christian in Trip, South Dakota, have a privilege that never entered the wildest dreams of the high priests of old. Any time, day or night, you can draw near to God in the most holy place, not made with hands. Now let's ask the burning question. How derelict do you have to be to neglect the use of such a privilege? Neglecting a privilege argues what? Well, it argues that you don't care about the privilege. If you got a backstage pass at a concert and you didn't avail yourself of it, we'd just assume that you, didn't, you don't like the artist. He's so insignificant to you that you don't care to avail yourself of the free opportunity to meet someone other people are paying through the nose to meet. And here's where the, the exhortation to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together fits in. And it's actually kind of a double-layered exhortation. On the one hand, the original audience of Hebrews is being warned that just because Christ has fulfilled everything that the temple and its services signified, this does not equate to the neglect of public worship. When the Old Testament saints gathered for services in the temple, sacrifice played a big part, but there were other elements too, right? There was singing, reading, uh, prayer, reading a scripture, exposition of the scripture by the ministers. Those elements all remain. We gather, like the saints of old, to celebrate the sacrifice. The sacrifice we celebrate is Christ's one offering of himself once and for all. And so I trust you can see how grave a sin neglecting public worship is. In both the Old and New Testaments, the gravest penalty that the church can mete out is excommunication. It is so severe, in fact, that the Old Testament typified it by death. The phrase always used was, cut off from the people. Our catechism teaches us that Christ has instituted the offices of the keys of the kingdom to maintain order in his church. And it defines the keys of the kingdom as the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. Question 85 then explains how the kingdom of heaven is shut and opened by church discipline. We read, When according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those thereunto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment are again received as members of Christ in his church. I'm going to be bold and say that I have never met anyone who views church membership as highly as the catechism. Have you ever met anyone who really truly felt that if they were excommunicated from the church, they were in actuality being cast out of the kingdom of God, that God himself was casting them out of his church according to the commandment of Christ? I dare say you haven't, but I also dare say that it's the truth whether anyone believes it or not. Whether you are absent from the house of God because you have been excluded due to errant doctrine or practice, or because you willingly absent yourself makes no real difference. Both are excommunication. One is imposed by the church and the other is self-imposed. Our text warns anyone 
who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When you are excluded from the Christian church and by God from his kingdom, because you maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent with a profession of the Christian faith, the way that it plays out is that you are officially barred from the means of grace, word and sacrament. On the one hand, you're forbidden the use of the sacraments, and on the other, you don't get to hear the preaching of the word. Both are true and effectual curses of God. It is an effectual curse of God to have your access to the sacraments blocked. You are being barred from the Savior's appointed means of strengthening your faith in His one sacrifice for sins. By being barred from the Lord's table, it is being exhibited to everyone that you are not recognized as a part of the body of Christ. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Imagine what it would look like on Communion Sunday if one of the elders, in open sight of everyone present, withheld from you the bread and the wine. But when you regularly absent yourself from God's house on the Sabbath, you're doing that to yourself. It's also an effectual curse of God to have your access to the Word blocked. In Amos 8, verse 11, God likens it to a famine, to not have access to the preaching of the Word. He says, I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. The loss of gospel preaching is a sure sign of God's curse on an individual and on a nation. 2 Chronicles 15.3 describes the curse of God upon apostate Israel with these words, For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without law. Psalm 74, verse 9, laments the effects of this curse with these words. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet, neither is there any among us that knoweth how long. I quoted all those verses to make this point. That to be barred from the preaching of the word and from the sacraments is a sign of God's curse upon you. And now I want to drive that point home a little harder. It doesn't matter whether you absent yourself or whether your absence from the church on the Lord's Day is because you have been officially disciplined or because of your own decision. Either way, you are under the curse of God. To purposely avoid the communion of the saints on the Lord's Day <coughs> excuse me, is self-imposed excommunication. Arose by any other name. It's excommunication. You have been barred from word and sacrament. Not by duly appointed officers of the church, but by your own arrogance, by your own laziness, by your commitment to worldly priorities, by your obsession with entertainment and recreation. Now, I'm not suggesting that salvation is earned by faithful church attendance, but I am warning that you cannot be saved if you are outside of the fellowship of the church. Ever since I came to trip, I've been warning people about the unintended consequences of skipping church because of the current health concern. Every member of the consistory knows how I've opposed any measure that keeps God's people from his house on the Lord's Day. Once we grant that there are circumstances in which we can forego church, we've essentially said that church is not essential. 
We've essentially said that we will obey man rather than God. We've essentially said that we value physical health more than spiritual health. Whereas Jesus says, what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Scripture commands us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and it does so without qualification. God supplied no footnote that says, except in the following cases. There is no qualification on this commandment, period. We worry about spreading germs. Our venerated forefathers worshipped in the catacombs of Rome, underground grave sites. They gathered for worship within the arm's reach of the decaying corpses of their martyred brethren. If you absent yourself from the Lord's house so that you can indulge in sports, get in your shopping, or because you think your body is more important than your soul, I have no doubt but that you'd curse Christ to his face to save your life. Why do you think our text ends with warnings about trampling the Son of God underfoot and falling into the hands of the living God? Notice also the setting of the warning. The recipients of this letter were not living the life of Riley. They were being persecuted for their faith. Many of them had had their property confiscated. There was the imminent threat of death for the sake of the gospel. And in the midst of these real dangers, Paul warns them to not forsake assembling together. And he goes so far as to link faithful attendance at worship with a true profession of faith and a true possession of salvation. There's been an undercurrent of warning against apostasy in this epistle ever since chapter 5 and the reality of the danger is seen right here in verse 25 where Paul Paul says forsake not the assembling of yourselves as is the manner of some let's be frank can you really believe a man's profession of faith if that profession can't get his dead rear end out of bed and into a pew on Sunday morning can you truly believe that this man has any experiential knowledge of salvation by grace in Christ if he can't be bothered to put away his toys on the Lord's Day. A true profession of faith, says Paul, is not one that draws back. Does he really believe that he has access to the Holy of Holies by the blood of Christ if he can't be prevailed upon to apply that privilege for one measly hour on Sunday morning? That's why our text ends where it does. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in a way that looks back over all that he said and looks forward to what he's about to say. He looks forward to the saving faith of all the great heroes of the Old Testament. But he also looks back upon what he has just argued to show that a credible profession of faith has, at a bare minimum, a commitment to correct doctrine and faithfulness to the communion of the saints. One of the most reliable marks of election is a love for the visible church. You can't love Christ and hate his bride. Our passage says that we draw near to God with a true heart. Truth is opposed to falsehood and error. God requires doctrinal truth. If a man reject fundamental truth, he cannot be a true and accepted worshiper of God. For instance, one who denies the Trinity, denies and repudiates salvation. One who rejects Scripture's doctrine of the atonement, denying that Christ bore our sins, suffered the penal evil, the death due to us, that man cannot be saved. But, along with this commitment to the truth, there is also a commitment to the communion of the saints as well. 
The just who lives by faith is set in opposition to the wicked one who doesn't value his profession of faith enough that he takes advantage of the royal privilege of uninhibited access to the Holy of Holies. It's not meaningful enough to convince him of the duty and privilege of honoring the Lord's Day. Remember our Old Testament reading? If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. Our text exhorts us, tells us to exhort one another to faithfulness at church attendance. Forsake not the assembly, but exhort one another Our Christian love for each other is a preventative measure that guards us against the very great and dangerous evil of neglect of public worship. Neglecting public worship is the first step on the frightful road to damnation. Men who habitually neglect the Sabbath, in short order, become openly wicked. And so Paul says, don't let that happen. But exhort one another to the assembling of yourselves together. This is the great means of keeping alive the spirit of religion in the soul of the individual and in the soul of the corporate church body. And if you turn your back on the means that God has provided, you have no right to expect God will send after you. Let us pray.